This is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 82. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Coming up on this week's edition of the program, a couple of talented artists won a 16-time Grammy Award winner and won a much-beloved actress from a much-beloved television series. We're talking about David Foster and Cindy Williams. And let's get things underway by talking with Cindy Williams, who uh, came up through the L.A. scene in the late 1960s. First came to prominence on a show called Room 222 that I have fond memories of as a young man. (laughs) All about school and a show that was ahead of its time. Uh, then landed the plum role of Laurie Henderson, the love interest of Ronnie Howard, Opie, and of course, American Graffiti from George Lucas. Uh, after that, an appearance in the highly acclaimed Francis Ford Coppola film, The Conversation with Gene Hackman, and then, of course, Laverne and Shirley which became uh, one of the biggest shows in the country for several years, co-starring with Penny Marshall. But Cindy Williams has had a very interesting life, chronicled in her book, Shirley, I Jest, which is now out in paperback. Here's our conversation with actress Cindy Williams. Cindy, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. So much to talk about with you, but uh, let's go back to the beginning and talk about how you, uh, you found a home for yourself uh, when you were in high school in a in a play production class that had some uh, pretty talented people as well as yourself. Oh, yes, well, uh, that was sort of my first experience with theater, and I had tried out for the talent show, and uh, instead the director of the theater arts department asked me, he said, well, you made it into the talent show, but I think you should take theater, think about taking theater arts as an elective. I'll put you straight into play production. And so I said, what the hey? And I did. I was thrilled. And I was in uh, the class with Sally Field, um, who was marvelous. But she was in and out of class because she um, was doing, I believe, The Flying Nun, (laughs) which I was very jealous of, but even more so when she got the role of Gidget. And then I was uh, green with envy. <laughs> uh, after school, you went... Even then, she was a marvelous, marvelous actress. Uh, at 15, she was brilliant. And it, uh, it didn't take a, a, a Rhodes Scholar to figure that out. <laughs> you brilliant on stage. You made the decision to study uh, theater in college as well, but uh, it sounds like a really wonderful break and opportunity for you and something that you remain proud of was that acceptance into the actor's studio. Well, that came um, after I went to uh, I went to Los Angeles City College and enrolled in the theater arts department there. And that was just by happenstance with my uh, good friend, Vern Joyce, who uh, also, who I'd met, in the theater arts department at Los Angeles City College. And um, he had gone to New York and auditioned for the actor's studio and made it to the final round. But he, but when he made it to the final round, he was he had moved back to um, Los Angeles. So he asked me if I would do his final audition scene with him. And I said, sure. So the pressure's off of me, you see. <laughs> so anyway... Um, so I did the scene with him, and uh, lo and behold, he made it in, and they made me a member also. And it was 
due mostly to his fine talent and, uh, you know, taking me along with him in, and uh, just being brilliant in that scene. So, uh, yes, I am a member of the acclaimed Actors Studio. Now, while you were in, in L.A., you also got a job uh, because you need something to make make the ends meet, pay the bills, and you worked at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go and had a memorable run in, well, a lot of famous people, but I especially love the story in your book about Jim Morrison. You know, it's, it's very tough to tell this story because I'd have to be like there in front of you and the <laughs> listening audience to act it out. But, uh, yes, I got a job as a cocktail waitress at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go during the height of, um, you know, the... Um, just the height of the 60s, and um, and everything that was going on on the Sunset Strip there in, and in L.A. and around the world, actually. And um, so my first night, they gave me the VIP section to wait, which I was surprised about because only the older, more, you know, schooled, uh, the scholared cocktail waitresses <laughs> got to got to serve the VIP section, but they gave it to me and they said, you know, and the girl said, that's your first table over there. And I walked over and there was a gentleman who was sitting with his back to me and there were two uh, blonde girls. I remember they were blonde, both blonde because they both ordered Tom Collins. <laughs> both ordered the same drink and both had the same color hair. Anyway, and then I asked the gentleman, I said, and producer, and he turned around, and it was Jim Morrison in, in this light that was like a godly light from heaven <laughs> upon him. And he, he looked like a great god. And I was stammering, and he said, I'll have a bottle of Jack. And I, I wrote down bottle of Jack. I took it over to the bartender, Tony, and I put it up. And he said, what's this bottle of Jack? Is Morrison in the club? And I said, yes, Jim Morrison is in the club. <laughs> and... He said, well, he knows perfectly well I can't serve him a bottle at the table. Tell him a single or a double or that's it. So I had the task of going back to tell Jim Morrison he couldn't have a bottle of Jack on the table. And uh, he said, who's tending bars at Tony? And I said, yes. And he said, he served me a bottle of Jack before. He'll serve me a bottle of Jack tonight. Go tell him that. And so I had to go back to Tony. And then he sent me back again. Then they started calling each other names. And I was supposed to carry these messages back and forth until I was in tears. And um, I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Morrison, but I cannot serve you a bottle of Jack. I can bring you a double or a single. I'll buy it for you. And he took my hand and he said, what's your name? And I said, Cindy. And he said, well, Miss Cindy, we're just playing with you. <laughs> and I turned around and everyone was laughing at me. All the waitresses, the busboys, uh, Tony, all the bartenders, everyone. And they, he pranked me. And he said, I'll take a double. And that <laughs> was it. And then I, that was it. They sent me up to the peanut gallery. I never Well, no, they sent me to a different section. They had only sent me to the VIP section to do that to me, you know, <laughs> and uh, so it was fun. I mean, in the end, it's a great story to tell, but oh, it's, sure it's, a, it's a tough story to tell because, as I said, if I was there in front of you, Rich, I'd act it out and, and it'd be much more colorful. I'm picturing you acting it out, if that helps. Okay, that, it does help. <laughs> it does help picture me running back and forth. And being just terribly upset because I couldn't 
bring a bottle of Jack Daniels to Jim Morrison's table. <laughs> you also made friends uh, very early on uh, with Ed Begley Jr., who wrote the foreword to your book, and, and is right up front about the fact that he always hoped it would be more than friends, but in the long run, it's worked out very well for both of you. Oh, he's like my little brother, in a way. You know, I mean, um, his daughter Amanda is my goddaughter, and I'm just, it's, you know, he's like family, and uh, just a wonderful, wonderful actor, wonderful, you know, I mean, just an environmentalist. That's where I basically learned you know, all of that from, I mean, he, he, he used to drive, I saw him coming off a freeway off ramp one time in an electric, uh, golf cart and he had, um, a friend with him and I had, and he picked me up for a date one time. This is when I first met him in that golf cart. And, uh, and he just practices what he preaches and, He's got a beautiful home that's off the grid. You know, everything is off the grid. He also came to a party I was giving one night and asked if he could plug his car into my uh, socket in the garage. And I said, sure. And he blew all the lights out (laughs) at the party, everything. That darn electric car. (laughs) But he was way, way ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve. And he's a darling friend of mine, just a fabulous person. We're talking with Cindy Williams here on Downtown. Uh, Well, an early break came when you were cast in the television series Room 222. I love that show. I'm a teacher in my full-time job, and one of the reasons is I I was so inspired by that show as a kid. Uh, What a great opportunity that was for you as well. It was my first job, and um, if memory serves me, it was James Brooks who hired me for that job, and um, and I, I play that character, Rhoda Zagor. I'll never forget her name, Rhoda Zagor. And uh, I played that character three times. But the first time was um, with on an episode that I believe won an Emmy. I think it was called The Substitute Teacher. I'm not sure, but because um, I only remember me, of course. <laughs> but... Um, and it was my very first job, and so they also played a prank on me on that show. But it was a um, kind of a, um, you know, a historic show because it had, oh, and I'm going to forget their names, but um, it had two, the principal and one of the teachers were um, black actors, and it was one of the first shows that ever uh, had, you know, actors uh, who are African-American as the lead. Right, Lloyd Haynes. It was, it was, but you know what? It didn't matter. I mean, you just saw no You didn't go on the show and say, gee, there's black actors here. It was like just this show that was just wonderful, and every actor on the show was sublime. And uh, But it was that show that had, um, you know, two of the first African-American actors be leads. Lloyd Haynes and Denise Nicholas. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. That's why I'm here. It's what I do. They were fantastic people to work with, just so encouraging and, and lovely and just wonderful actors. 
You got the role in a, a film being made by George Lucas, the role of Laurie Henderson in American Graffiti, and I was surprised to learn that was not the role you wanted. No, I wanted Candy uh, Clark's role of Debbie, bad <laughs> girl, you know, the risque girl. And, uh, and then that was already cast when I was offered the part of Laurie. So then I said, well, what about Carol? And the casting director, who was Fred Bruce, said, well, Carol is a 12-year-old. And I said, I'll put braces on. <laughs> and I could do it. And he goes, well, believe it or not, Cindy, I've actually cast a 12-year-old to play a 12-year-old. So anyway, I, and all 12 it ends well because it was a fantastic um, film and just an incredible experience. And I played the girl who cries the entire night. <laughs> I love that movie so much. But you also made another movie uh, not long after that that uh, for some reason people don't talk about as much. I think it's one of the great movies of the 70s, and that's The Conversation. That was such an incredible film. Yes. Um, uh, well, it was what they, well, Francis Ford Coppola wrote it and directed it, of course, and that was monumental for me and it was a brilliant brilliant script brilliant movie and i was so fortunate to be uh in it and um they referred to it as that little movie francis did in between godfather <laughs> right and uh he did he did it uh in between godfather one and two and that was a movie that he made and it was just Fantastic! I was so blessed to be in that in that film. You mentioned Fred Roos, and you had uh, earlier uh, worked, signed up to work with Fred Roos and Gary Marshall as uh, as reps for you. And we've talked to so many people from from Henry Winkler to uh, uh, Don Most to Anson Williams, and and all of them, Michael McKean, all have talked about what an incredible influence Gary Marshall was, not just on their career, but but his people. That it was like going to school being around him. Well, he was methodical and um, always wanted wanting to be cohesive with a family. And I don't want to say morality, but it was like a family. It was like the golden rule. He always wanted that to be present. I mean, he didn't put it like that, but there always had to be a thought process of why the characters came to the at the end of the piece, if they tried to do something, for instance, Penny and I, Laverne and Shirley, get a rebate on their gas bill, and they find out that it's a mistake. So they question, should they spend the money or shouldn't they spend the money? And so that's Gary's doing that at the end. We talk to each other about how right it was of us to give the money back, and that had we money and kept it for you know for ourselves you know that that wouldn't have been right but we did it in comedic terms you're on a comedy level and um and he was a genius at that and that was always something he wanted questioned like i don't wear fur and um on this show we did where we were uh, diving for dollars. I forget what it was <laughs> called, but we get on this game show and we almost win a fur coat and a 
trip to, you know, a cruise and all this money. And in the end, we finally lose. And I have said to Gary, I just don't want to have to put that fur coat on. I don't want to put it on because I'm so against wearing fur. And he said, all right, I'll write you a line. So he wrote me a line where at the end we're discussing how we were kind of greedy, wanting to win that show and we'd do anything to win it. And and how it might have been best that we didn't win. And I said, I, you know, I was willing to wear the fur of an animal. I forget. It was a funny line. But I said, and that, you know, I was so greedy. I was willing <laughs> to wear the fur of an innocent animal. So, and Gary wrote that for me. And so he always had an eye on what good and bad, you know, and that good, goodness in a person should always trump the um the bad in that person and um and and that's how he and if you watch happy days or any of his television shows it's always good versus i mean it's always good wins out and uh and he always kept an eye on that along with being just a phenomenal comedy writer i I was surprised to learn kept an eye on that I was surprised to learn, Cindy, they, they were reluctant to let you uh, get involved in a lot of the physical comedy in the first season of the show. Well, they, this goes back to playing Laurie, you know, to every, every, even when I was on Room 222, I played the character that, you know, the lead's best friend who said, what's the matter, Jeannie? He didn't mean <laughs> to leave you, you know, I'm sure he still likes you, and then in American graffiti, crying, you know, all the time. And so they never saw me as a comedian, I don't think. And so the first two seasons, maybe, yeah, of the show, I had to fight for that. And, and uh, I mean, really fight for it. And they knew Penny could do it because they'd been on Odd Couple with her and because she's Gary's sister. But I kept going to Gary and saying, give me a chance. I can do physical comedy too I, I you know i'm very agile look <laughs> anyway he um he finally one day he came to me and he said we're going to write you something and uh it's going to be physical and we'll see how you do and um and then you know take it from there so they wrote me this thing where um we're doing house we're doing our house cleaning and she, Penny gets uh, the vacuum cleaner stuck on her lip because she's taking it off, the, you know, and she's just got the the tube there, and she gets it stuck on her lip, and all it said in the script was, Shirley, uh, Shirley pull, pulls it off. Shirley helps her get it off her, you know, her mouth. And so I just, I, I, just came up with all the physical things to do there. And I think I ended up putting my foot on her chest (laughs) and pulling. I'm not sure. But after that, Gary said, okay, okay, you proved it to us. You know, we'll start writing you physical comedy along with Penny to do. And that's, that's sort of how it became a two person physical show. I think people might be surprised to learn that uh, you were great friends as well with the late Andy Kaufman. Oh, yes, Andy. Yes, yes. What can I say? It's all there.
know, <laughs> he, um, I had seen him on Saturday Night Live and just thought he was brilliant. I couldn't take my eyes off of him. And he was playing the congas and doing that funny thing where he cries while he's singing, kind of. And I remember I was in a room of all my, I was in an acting class. And we were having a uh, an after-class uh, party, and Saturday Night Live was on. And I said, look, look at this guy. Everybody, come here and look. And I remember them all gathering around, and we all watched Andy. And then I, I met him at the improv one night, and, and he asked me if I could give him a ride home. And I said, sure. And then he started, at, we became friends, and then he started asking me if I'd like go to, if I was in New York, I'd go to Caroline's in the, you know, go to Caroline's and do a midnight show with him. And it's all in the book where he, he doesn't tell me what he's going to do. He just tells me what he wants me to do <laughs> on stage. And then I realize as I'm standing there that he's doing something that could possibly have the audience turn on us both uh, but um yeah he it, it was an honor an honor to get to work with him and i also did his um his uh um special that he had on abc and he just i just got him like most people that get him it's just a real it's a real different take on things and but it does make you happy. He just made people happy, and it snuck up on you. And I just love, he was so marvelous. And so, uh, and one time he came over to my house, and he, um, uh, he was, um, oh, that character that he did, that obnoxious character. Oh, uh, anyway, yeah. Clifton, Tony Clifton. Tony Clifton. And he refused. He was dressed like him. And I've never <laughs> seen Tony Clifton before. And he came to the door, and I said, what are you doing? And he had this Tony mustache on, and he was, you know, ordering me around and telling me to put the – I had a cat at the time and telling me that that cat's staring at him, put that cat in the other room. I said, Andy, what are you doing? And he kept saying, refer to me as Tony. I'm Tony. Uh, and so – it got me so upset that I finally ended up pulling his hair and saying, you um, better be Andy. <laughs> anyway, it's, that's in the book. But that's tough. I'd have to be in front of you again and show you what I meant um, by what, what went on there. But I finally got him out of that character, but it went on for hours before I, you know, got him. He said, what do you want? What do you want? When I was, I grabbed his hair at the temple because somebody told me if, you know, you're ever, if someone ever accosted, <laughs> grab, his hair, grab their hair at the temple with full. So I did, and he said, okay, okay, uh, what do you want? And I said, be Elvis. <laughs> and he pops up and he goes, well, hello, little lady. <laughs> like that, and he was, he was Elvis. Anyway, it was, it was a most marvelous, um, at most marvelous adventures I had with Andy Kaufman. Uh, you, wonderful, wonderful. And a sweetheart of a person and just an incredible entertainer, comic, you know, comedian. 
you returned to the stage and have traveled all around the country doing shows, but how big a thrill was it to make your Broadway debut in The Drowsy Chaperone? Oh, my goodness. That was a dream come true. That was, uh, you know, everything that if you go, if you study theater and, you you know, and you're on stage in college and then you take classes, the whole aim is to make it to Broadway or the London stage, but Broadway. And then I did. And, uh, of course, with my luck, I obviously was on strike, and so I couldn't rehearse. And um, anyway, um, and they closed the show three weeks after I was I started doing the show because the IOPSI strike had, you know, really maimed the show as far as business was concerned. But I got to be, I call it my three weeks on Broadway, and I don't write about that in the book <laughs> because um, I hadn't done it yet. Right. Cindy, it's a, it's such a treat to talk with you. We've enjoyed your work for so many years. Uh, we thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. Thank you for having me on, Rich. It's been a, my pleasure, believe me. Cindy Williams here on Downtown, the podcast. She was awesome. I love the fact that uh, Cindy, <laughs> a couple of times Cindy said, I could do a better job telling this story if I could be there and act it out for you, <laughs> <laughs> which I think would be awesome. That would have been wonderful. Yeah, but I'm picturing it all the same here. Uh, when we come back on the podcast, Grammy award-winning composer, arranger, producer, David Foster. He's got a lot going on with a new album, a new PBS special, and more. We'll talk to him after this word from Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com cross insurance where security meets strength hey we're back on downtown the podcast and a little taste of a brand new album from 16-time Grammy Award-winning producer, songwriter, and arranger David Foster. The new album is called An Intimate Evening. Also has uh, a brand new special on PBS called An Intimate Evening. And as always, a lot more in the works for award-winning producer David Foster. David, thank you so much for making time for us today. Hey, Rich, you're in Bangor, right? We sure are. That's a long way away, bro. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, you, I'm looking ahead. You've got yourself a pretty busy stretch coming up. Not not that it ever slows down for you, but uh, let's start with new album coming out, an intimate evening, and then the PBS special on November 29th. You know, PBS has always been such a great home for me to do specials and bring my music and the music I've been involved in people. And uh, but this one's a little bit different. It's uh, me and uh, three up and coming singers who deliver these songs that I've been a part of over the years, and it's a great sort of pull-the-curtain-back look at uh, my life, and, and uh, the music sort of speaks for itself, and it's also a CD, which I think is out now or yesterday or tomorrow, I'm not quite sure about that, but um, it's it's been fun, and it's going to carry me through to next year, and, 
end up being a year-long project. Well, let's talk about some of the people. Can you share some information on these artists who'll be performing your songs? Sure. So we have up-and-coming artists. You know, in my PBS specials in the past, I've featured the actual artists, you know, Celine and uh, Bocelli and Buble and Groban and Barbra Streisand. And, uh, as you can imagine, it was a, a lot to mount that show, those shows. Um, so this time I have up-and-coming singers. Uh, Shalaya Fraser, Pia Toscano from American Idol fame, uh, and Fernando Varela from uh, Puerto Rico, who now lives in Florida. Amazing three singers that can cover a lot of ground because my stuff is kind of diverse. And then my wife, Catherine, is going to be joining us for some of the days, too. So uh, that'll be fun. Well, she's been very busy as well, uh, coming off uh, Broadway, appearing in Waitress, working in the West End as well. And, uh, well, congratulations. You guys are, are still relative newlyweds. We are, and we, we actually did the Today Show yesterday. She's going back into Waitress for six weeks to close it out at the end of the year. We did the Today Show yesterday, and we did a song from the CD, from the PBS special that she actually sings on the PBS special. And uh, we're kind of tied at the hip in more ways than one now. Also, a documentary in the works as well, entitled Off the Record, that I can't wait to see. Yeah, and it gets done and dirty, man. I'm not kidding. They got stuff out of me that I never wanted to talk about. But, you know, a good director can do that. We're talking with David Foster here on Downtown. I, I did not realize, and I, I kick myself for not knowing this, doing a little research, that you were the keyboardist for the group Skylark that did one of my all-time favorite songs from the 70s, Wildflower. Yeah, wasn't that a great song? We were a one-hit wonder, Rich, um, which uh, I, I often wondered. Would a person rather be a one-hit wonder or have no hits at all? What would be better? Well, you know, if you do a song as great as that, that, that sounds as, as terrific 46 years ago as it did back then, I would take that one-hit wonder every time. Yeah, you're probably right. But if you, if you never could get the second one, I would have killed myself by now. <laughs> Sorry to say, it worked out. You've racked up more than a second one, a tremendous run of hits and success, 16 Grammy Awards. Uh, your work with Earth, Wind, and Fire in the late 70s was so terrific. You won a Grammy uh, for After the Love Has Gone. Uh, what, what was it like working with Maurice White and those guys? It was amazing. And somebody earlier on in an early interview said, uh, you know, you really crossed them over to the pop world. And I'm thinking, no, I didn't. They were already, they were already well ensconced in the pop world. I mean, I just managed to... Uh, keep the train going with them. And we, we made a lot of records together. And Maurice White, the genius behind Earth, Wind, and Fire, I learned so much from him. That's where I really learned uh, the start of learning how to be a, a good record producer. Because I didn't understand the concept really before that. I was trying, but not having any success. And after Maurice, I fell into, you know, in the 80s, Alice Cooper, and then Chicago, and then Shaka Khan, and Kenny Rogers, and Kenny Loggins, and into the 90s with Natalie Cole and Celine, and Whitney, and then into the 2000s with Buble and Bocelli and Groban. And I know it sounds like I'm just clueless, but that's what you're going to see on the PBS special, these songs from all these artists uh, and performed by other artists. And that's what's on the CD as well. Well, and you've crossed so many genres, and, and it begs the question uh, for, for a performer, for a songwriter, for a producer, do you even think in terms of genres, or is it all just, it's good music? I, I don't, it's a great question, and I, I don't think of genres. I just think when I lay my hands on the keyboard, what comes out is what comes out. And, you know, I'm not a rock and roller, even though I did those albums with the Tubes and with Alice Cooper, but it's not my natural habitat, so to speak. 
and I know I'm not a critic's darling, um, but I, I never was interested in, uh, I mean, I love people like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, I mean, they're inspirational as heck and all that, but I just don't gravitate towards that kind of singer-songwriter music. I sort of gravitate towards the big ballad and the heavy-handed thing, and it's, but it's not fake and it's not an act. It's, it's how I actually feel about music, and so I've, for the most part, been really honest about what I, the music that I make and how I make it. I don't try to be something that I'm not, you know. We had so much uh, success with Peter Cetera, with Chicago as well. Are, are there some artists, some performers where you just, you have that connection that enables you to, to be able to write in their voice and, and bring out the best in them? I think that, um, I, I think the best example probably would have been uh, in the 80s and 90s would have been Celine. Mm. Uh, and then in the 2000s, I, I would say that my work with, with Josh Groban and Michael Bublé was was um, where I was, you know, we were really, I mean, Michael Bublé and I have made five, six albums now together, and we're really tied at the hip. And, of course, he's worked with some other producers, too. But um, we've had so much success together. I think the, the Christmas album that we made together is uh, right up there amongst my favorite that I've ever done. And he's... He's an amazing artist and still relevant, and uh, we still work together, and uh, I, think, I think we also are tied to the hip. I understand you're also working on a, a Broadway adaptation, a musical based on the book Lucky Us. That's exactly right. I can't call it a Broadway musical yet because it's not on Broadway, but <laughs> working on that musical, Lucky Us, I'm working on um, Betty Boop, the musical, and uh, another couple of ideas, a catalog musical that people presented themselves uh, a woman named Kathleen Murphy and a guy named Todd Allman came to me and said, hey, we think we can make your songs into a story. Uh, and they did. And it's amazing what they've done. And that may be the first one that, that gets real legs and, and maybe actually gets to Broadway. So, um, you know, I keep trucking. I'm touring next year, uh, doing six months of, of dates, 50 dates. Got this album out now. I just did a solo piano album that'll come out sometime next year maybe in March. And, uh, you know, I stay busy and try to stay in the mix. Well, the album is out now. The PBS special premieres on November 29th. Check out the tour dates as well and get a chance to see David in concert. Uh, thank you so much for being with us, David. And thanks for the wonderful music for all these years. Much appreciated, man. It was my pleasure, Rich. And uh, I'm going to keep doing it as long as I'm happy. David Foster on Downtown, the podcast. And, boy, you look back at the last uh, 35, 40 years or so in pop music, and he's got his fingerprints all over it. And there are those who will accuse David Foster of being a bit on the schmaltzy side. He doesn't deny that, but it's worked out pretty well for him. Well, that's what people want to listen to sometime. And, man, he does those types of songs incredibly well. Yeah, I mean, his work with Buble and Celine Dion, of course, Chicago back in the 1980s, Earth, Wind, and Fire. That's some great stuff along the way. Our thanks to David Foster. Thanks to the wonderful Cindy Williams. And thanks to you for joining us on this week's edition of Downtown, the podcast brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.